welcome. Legally Brief presents Changing Our Institutions. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer who works with private and public companies, educational institutions, and sports organizations to identify root causes, confront historic failures, and boldly implement change to our institutions. This podcast is for corporate change agents, disruptors, and mindset mavericks who are committed to making our institutions work better for themselves and the next generation. I want to remind you that while I hope you enjoy every episode in the series that we're doing on changing our institutions, the content of this programming is not a substitute for speaking directly with an attorney who understands your unique circumstances. If you're looking for past episodes or information, please head on over to my website. There you'll find information and you can sign up for newsletters and you can learn more about me and my practice. I'm glad you're here. Let's get ready and let's talk and make some changes. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Legally Brief. Today, I have a conversation with my colleague at Grising Law, Kate Franzinger. Kate has several years, over 15 years of experience dealing with complex employment law matters. Kate has worked in both state and federal court. So during our conversation, we discuss ways that employers can transition their teams back to in-person working after the pandemic. And this will be especially helpful for those employers that have experienced growth during the pandemic. So many teams haven't worked together. Everyone's been virtual. And Kate will speak to that and provide some best practices for setting up and how to do that now that we're all back in person, or many of us are back in person. Kate also discusses effective ways that employers can directly address toxicity in the workplace. She also provides a very persuasive business case as to why everyone, employers, HR, need to support implementing change if you are dealing with a toxic work culture. I hope you enjoy my conversation with my colleague, Kate Franzinger. I have my colleague at Grising Law on today for a conversation that we have been planning to have and schedules have been tight. We've all been busy, but I am delighted to have Kate Franzinger to have a conversation about topics in employment, discrimination, and what I usually do, Kate, when I have someone with such a deep understanding in one particular topic, I don't bother to read the rote resume or bore the listener with that. What I want you to do is just actually give us a little bit of background and context into what you've been doing where your specialty lies, where your concentration is, and then we'll go from there. That sounds great. Thanks for having me, Judy. So I am a employment lawyer. I primarily work with small, medium, and large size employers, and I provide employers with advice and guidance on how to navigate federal and local employment regulations and compliance and how to manage disputes with employees and how to perform investigations. And importantly, and close to my heart, is what to do with the information that comes out of employment investigations. And the majority of my work tends to center around employers who deal with age, sex, and race discrimination, as well as disability discrimination. And most recently, in the last two years, really focusing on how employers need to manage the workplace kind of in light of COVID and quarantining and the pandemic and how to bring employees kind of back to the table after going through the last two years of the trauma that, that we've sort of all been experiencing in, in, as a result of the pandemic. Well, that's exactly what we need. And that's what I'm hoping. I, you know, I knew that we were going to have a good conversation and timely conversation, something that listeners can use. So let's start with, your, with the latter of your points. 
because it's speaks directly to what we're, everyone is going through. If you're in a workplace, you're coming back after the first wave, or some people call it the third wave, but the now we're in, we're just finishing up or rounding off, however you want to say it, with the Omicron, you're coming back to the workplace. Talk to us a little bit about the difficulties that you've seen that employers and employees are facing. Maybe if you could focus on two or three hurdles that employers are facing. We've been working remotely. You're coming back into the workplace. What are some of the best ways to manage that and to deal with that? And what are the problems that you see arise? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm hearing the most from clients and from employers is the difficulty in navigating sort of the the relationships between employees and employees and management as they come back. During the pandemic, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, we have a labor supply or labor shortage issue, um, and that many employers, many companies did experience some financial difficulty as a result of COVID. In fact, a lot of companies were growing during this time and finding that their employees were very productive working remotely, extremely productive working remotely. So we saw a combination of companies growing and adding to their workforce during the pandemic, adding employees, but then many of them were starting out remotely. They were going through onboarding and trying to acclimate to their teams remotely. So we have an issue of kind of what happens now with those employees who've been remote their entire tenure with the employer and have developed different types of relationships than you might develop when you're in the workplace. And then in addition to that, we have employers who maybe at the same time are also dealing with how to bring back the folks that were already, you know, had already been tenured with the company moved from being uh, you know, in the office to remote and now are looking at coming back to the office or at least coming back part-time or in a hybrid situation and wanting and requiring and needing change in the workplace to improve employee morale and improve their working conditions while they're in the workplace. So those things all kind of are happening at the same time, again, sometimes with the same employers dealing with all those things together. So a lot of employers have asked sort of what do we do to address these issues and prevent employees from leaving, because that's sort of the third key hurdle that that employers are facing is employees resigning, employees deciding not to come back and having difficulty recruiting and and hiring new employees to replace them or making the decision about whether they really need to do that or do some of the changes that have come about in the last two years obviate the need to replace some of these employees. So I think, you know, as to the sort of the first point and really in the second point, which is how do you acclimate employees to the workplace? How do you acclimate them to their teams when you're coming back from being remote or coming back part time? And one of the things that I continually tell employers is they need to start long before they make the decision to come back. Um, well before they, the company makes a decision, we're going to bring our employees back into the office or back into the workplace. They need to start while the employees are remote thinking about how they're going to acclimate those folks to the workplace. How are we going to get these people to work together as a team in person when they've been working remotely for so long? Have you seen, did you experience any type of real world situations when you're talking about how to start to acclimate before they bring them back? What are some ideas that you would give? Does that look like, so for example, the use of weekly team meetings, does it look like more, you know, I've seen on, I've been on some different lift serves where you have individuals that I wasn't a part of the group, but I was either on the lift serve and they'll do things like team building activities remotely. Are those some of the examples of what employers can do when they're thinking about transitioning back or what would you suggest? Yeah, I think what I'm finding is that the use of technology and technology, not just you know Zoom meetings, for example, but finding technology or using the technology that you have that allows the employees to connect more easily and more quickly when they are remote. It helps to foster a better relationship among the employees so that when they're back, they they feel more more close. So, for example, um, clients that use Microsoft Teams or similar types of programs, not an endorsement necessarily, but that's one that I've seen a lot. It allows the employees to you know, call each other by video, kind of one click, 
They can have a secure channel for texting each other as opposed to flooding each other's inboxes because that's another big issue that people are running into is as people are remote, there's a lot more email flying back and forth and inboxes are, are getting full. A program that allows employees to connect with each other through texting and direct messaging, but it creates a sort of a secure channel and one that's maintained on the company server so that if there's information in there that the company needs to retain, they can do that. It allows for a central kind of forum where the employer can rapidly disseminate information, almost like an intranet. And that type of program, that type of software or application, which we're seeing some of the traditional, you know, sort of Zoom type software suppliers adding as value add to their software, allows employees to kind of start really connecting more closely and less formally than, than they were kind of when we first started in the, in the pandemic. I think one-on-ones with employees and their supervisor or management and then small and, you know, or team group meetings regularly scheduled that puts employees and managers in the habit of meeting one-on-one or in small groups, even if there's not a lot to talk about. I know folks don't like to do too many meetings, but, you know, a 15 or 30 minute meeting scheduled once a week via Zoom or a similar type of program where maybe there's an agenda, but you don't necessarily have to stick with it. Folks can kind of talk about what they're working on talk about their job specific, you know, issues. And then, and that allows the management to disseminate information about the organization in a much more direct and personal way that employees might've otherwise heard, you know, at the water cooler, for example, or, you know, just from going out to lunch with their colleagues and doing so over a video versus just over telephone or text allows the employees to really connect with each other and take in a lot more information, those sort of multiple sensory input that allows them to develop kind of more of a trust and understanding of how to read their colleagues, because that is always a, a critical issue that comes about when you're working remotely is, is learning how to read your, your colleagues and your management I and mean, read your employees. There's anything you can do to sort of simplify the process of employees connecting and then setting habits to meet and talk regularly long before you make the decision to come back helps to foster those relationships that they will then have to kind of reignite and develop in person when they come back. So let's say, Kate, where you've had a your ideal employer, they've thought about the plan, they've spoken with you, that they have given a date that employees are going to return to the workplace, return to the office. They've set in some of these ways for you to connect remotely using tech to an advantage. They are not causing workplace anxiety with overflowing email. They have a secure channel for text. So now let's move this and we're back in the workplace. What have you seen to be some of the built-in obstacles or tensions that employers are encountering once back in the office? So to give it some context, what if you have employee X who has grown used to the new rhythm of working from home? Maybe they're getting up early. They're not having to do the hour commute. If you're like I am, I know I'm talking to you. You're in Arizona. You're in our Arizona office. I'm here on the East Coast. And if I'm not commuting to New York City an hour, an hour and a half on a good day, if the New Jersey transit is working optimally, you're not having to commute. So, you know, you've gotten used to not commuting. You are able to maybe work very effectively, go do, say, a noon Pilates, come back. Are you finding that there's tension with employees not wanting to give up their new rhythm, remote working rhythm, so to speak? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're seeing a huge number of employees choosing to leave and find new jobs because they don't want to have to give up their remote work. What I tell employers, and this is the same kind of across the board, depending on any kind of policy, is you have to work within the behaviors that people have, right? So if employees are used to doing things a certain way, it's almost impossible to change how employees either act or perceive the way that they're being act, the way they're being asked to act. And you've got to find a way to incorporate into the, the policies and procedures and sort of the way that folks are working 
the behaviors that these people are already engaging in, so long as they're productive, obviously. But even if they're not productive, they can be, you know, pushed slightly to a different course rather than making a 180. The biggest issue I see is employers trying to set a date. Here's when we're coming back. Everyone's coming back and we're just going to go back to the way things were before, the before time. And it doesn't work. It's just you, know, you get mass resignations, you have unhappy employees, and productivity drops tremendously. So a, a slow change is better than a fast change, slowly acclimating to coming back. So maybe you start with coming back on a hybrid model or, a, you know, employees come in, you know, not every day. Maybe they come in a couple times a month. Maybe they come in once or twice a week. And you really have to sort of honor and respect the fact that they know how they are going to work best. They know how they're going to be most productive because they're doing the job. So if you try to find a way to incorporate the behaviors that they are already engaging in that are highly productive, rather than trying to do a 180 and bring them all back, you know, all at once, you're going to find that folks are much more willing to compromise on the remote work sort of in-person tension. It all starts with the first question of, do you really need people to come back? A lot of employers are, are asking that question. It's, there's certainly many benefits to having people working in the same place, working in the same office. Nothing quite beats in-person connections and the ease of being able to sort of walk down the hall and talk to somebody. But, you know, a lot of employers are also finding that they can save on real estate expenses. They can increase productivity because folks can work, they work more. They may work with less distraction when they're at home and they can work out a schedule that works for them with their personal lives, which we're finding employees are trying to recapture, to reclaim their personal lives more now than they did before the pandemic. So first question is always, do you need them to come back? And if there is a real need for them to come back, can you work out a slow kind of return to the office? Maybe it's just meeting in person a couple of times a week or a couple of times a month. And then maybe it's bringing people back in in shifts so that not everybody is coming in at the same time. So folks can kind of retain a little bit of that independence and lack of distraction that they experience when they're working from home and then working out and reassessing regularly. I mean, I think that's the, the name of the game, being flexible, being open-minded and sort of meeting the employees where they are. That's the key to success. So, Kate, let's work under the hypothetical that the employees are back. This is a business. It's one of those businesses that experienced growth during the pandemic because the statistics do show that there were several sectors that grew rapidly during the pandemic. And you're coming back, you're new employees, you have longer tenured employees. And what should employers be thinking about as far as if they, I'm going to turn the corner a little bit, they're coming back and we're thinking about now the policies, the procedures that speak directly to claims or discrimination. Should employers include in their return plan maybe new training, a refresher, a revision of policies? Because now if you're in this hypothetical, if you're one of the businesses that have grown and you have new and tenured employees, incumbents coming back, what should they be thinking about on how to balance this, you know, this growth that they experienced? Yeah, I think starting before the return, it's important to re kind of remind the the tenured employees and as part of the onboarding for new employees remind everybody what the policies and procedures are for discrimination or harassment claims you know a lot of times those are policies that are just sort of stuck into the handbook and nobody really talks about them until they become an issue but i think signaling to the employees before the return that you have a policy and what that policy is and demonstrating a commitment to the policy before the return is critical in, in establishing that sort of trust and credibility. And it also reminds the employees that are coming back that, look, you may be returning to a changed workplace. I, I had a client that during the pandemic grew tremendously. And before the pandemic, it was a fairly small family-owned business. Um, the employees knew each other really well. They really didn't have any issues with, with harassment or bullying. During the pandemic, they grew. Most of the employees started remotely and they started bringing the folks back, you know, slowly, but, but bringing folks back to the workplace because they, they really needed to. And 
the tenured employees returned to and the new employees entered into a workplace that had never been this size before, that had never had this sort of number of new people and found a completely changed culture because of the influx of new employees that had never worked under the prior culture. And, and again, with more people, you're going to find more potential issues, right? Because folks are, you just, it's just a statistical reality that the more people you have, the more likely you are to have issues. And so they found that there were sort of growing factions among the tenured employees and the new employees. The new employees really had not been well trained on harassment and had not been trained at all, really, on what the, the company's values and culture was because they'd never really needed to do it with new employees who were coming into the workplace for the first time into that. They were kind of coming into the fold. And they got overwhelmed by the, the number of new people who had not worked in that environment. And therefore, they started to run into a lot of huge issues with harassment and bullying because they had a, an untrained workforce that was coming into something completely new. And they really hadn't been able to or had tr- not really tried to cultivate a new culture for the change size and personalities of the folks that were coming in to the company. So what we recommend it there and what I always recommend is obviously you want to do your standard um, anti-harassment, anti-bullying and anti-discrimination training. But a lot of times that looks like sort of just an online class and it's checking a box. What I strongly recommend is doing that training before the return to work over a, you know, sort of video, something that is where folks are able to watch it and see it. And then doing it again in person where your trainer is literally there in the room with the folks who are being trained. Because we find that when folks are in person receiving that training, they take it more seriously because you can customize the training to potential hypotheticals in your workplace, talk about things that have actually happened in the workplace. And and it hits the employees in a much more personal, um, I think, an intense and intimate way that allows you to kind of you know, take advantage of that in-person training to prevent issues with harassment and bullying and discrimination in the workplace. You know, Kate, while we're still on this topic of harassment in the workplace, you and I know that just recently, so we're recording this on what, February 28th, uh, about maybe a week or a half ago on February 10th, that New York Senator Kristen Gillibrand, she'd introduced previously, but the Senate finally passed the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Harassment Act. And we expect President Biden to sign this within a couple of days. And just to remind you, so this act, this piece of legislation is was introduced to prevent the forced arbitration of employees. So for example, for our listeners, if you are an employee, many times there is a agreement that you would have signed at the time of the beginning of your employment, which would have stated that any types of claims that you may have against your employer for sexual harassment, that you these would be resolved in arbitration, sometimes confidential arbitration. So this act was an attempt to give employees the option of going outside of the more confidential arbitration and to litigating in traditional courtroom settings. What are kind of your thoughts and can you, other than just what I stated, is there anything else employers should know about this act that was recently passed? Yeah, so this act prohibits pre-dispute agreements on arbitration. Obviously, employees and employers can decide after the dispute arises if they want to go to arbitration. It's also a, a prohibition on class pre-dispute class action waivers. So it's both the arbitration and class action waivers. And I think What's important for employers to do, you know, we don't have the bill signed yet. Obviously, the president's a little distracted right now because otherwise I would expect that it would have been signed by now, but understandably distracted. But once that bill is signed into law, it's retroactive. So that means that even if the employee signed the arbitration agreement, you know, five years ago, it will no longer be enforceable as a pre-dispute arbitration agreement. So it it goes back to every employee that's ever signed one you know, and then going forward. What we don't know yet, but what we're really looking at is what does that mean for how we need to modify arbitration agreements with employees? Certainly, they're still permissible for other issues, 
and they're useful oftentimes for both employer and employee because they're faster than litigation. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that employers need to just sort of throw away their class action waivers and their arbitration agreements. We know class action waivers are very helpful for wage and hour disputes. But it does mean that we need to look at what should we be doing to modify these agreements that go, you know, that employees sign, because very often the Department of Labor and the EEOC require employers to point out in those agreements what things are not arbitrable, what things they do not apply to, in order for those agreements to be determined to be enforceable across the board. So even if you're dealing with a wage and hour claim, if it doesn't state that the sexual harassment claims are excluded, you might find that the arbitration agreement itself across the board is unenforceable. So we're looking at, and and employers need to look at, what does their arbitration program or the class action uh, waiver look like, and what modifications do we need to make to those agreements to ensure that they're enforceable as to other issues, if that's what the employer wants to continue doing with their arbitration program. Um, So that's one critical point. The other is just you know, the importance of this, I think, is in really focusing, is forces employers, and it's not that employers aren't already focused on prevention, but very often employers look at training and policies and procedures as a defense to liability or safe harbor to liability, but don't think of the training as much as a preventive measure. I think this means employers really need to change their focus on their policies and their training to focus more on prevention, which is why I think the in-person training is so helpful. Because once the issue arises, employers can't sort of look at this and say, well, this is going to be a confidential arbitration. We just need to prove that we're not liable, or we just need to settle the arbitration once it happens. What employers need to focus on is prevention so that these issues don't come up in the first place and therefore expose the employer to potential, not liability so much as bad press, poor worker morale, things that that occur when these claims become public, which they will when they are in litigation instead of arbitration. So what you're really talking about, I think the, the underlying foundation of not only this act, but your explanation of it is a change in workplace culture, preventative to begin with, but if you don't, if you haven't already established that workplace culture, that maybe there's some changes that need to be made. What is, you know, so you're counseling, let's put another hypothetical in front of you. You're counseling a, an employer, you're giving them recommendations about how to stop, how to prevent, curb a toxic culture. Maybe it's a culture of discrimination, harassment, bullying going on. What's the business case? If the client is not necessarily listening to the statistical or anecdotal evidence, or maybe you're appealing to some, you know, ethical or moral reason, what's the business case for workplace change that you would make to an employee who seems resistant or reluctant to implement new policies, even in light of this act and other things? Right. Yeah. I think the combination of this act and sort of a changed perspective or a changed attitude and a balance of the power between employer and employee over the last couple of years, it, it presents a very strong business case for making the change, even if it's not sort of a moral or ethical imperative. As of last year, hard costs in hiring new employees was you know close to $4,500 per employee. I am certain that it's more now because of the labor shortage that we are experiencing, employers are paying more either wages or in signing bonuses. So if you don't make changes in the workplace and you have folks resigning or leaving because of it, there is an incredible economic cost just in bringing on board new employees. The hard costs in bringing them on and then the loss of productivity as employees ramp up You also have a significant loss in productivity for those employees that are still in the workplace as they deal with either personally dealing with a toxic work culture or they watch their their colleagues facing a toxic work culture. It's a tremendous hit to productivity um, and opportunity cost for the employer as they try to kind of recapture that the relationship with those employees that remain and then bring on new employees and try to kind of train them and get them productive in the first place. 
So it's a huge upfront financial investment to bring on a new employee if somebody leaves because of those unresolved issues. And we also see kind of on a related point, this concept that a lot of folks are familiar with called turnover contagion. And that is when one person leaves, others start to leave too, or they consider leaving. And this is a, I guess this is an anecdotal or typically sort of an anecdotal truth that operations and HR folks know, but it's actually a, it's sort of been studied scientifically. And the the concept of turnover contagion has been kind of a, a huge question historically, and it's becoming even more so now, such that folks really are, are researching it and looking at what is this turnover contagion? What causes it? And, and is it a real thing? And I read a study from the University of New South Wales, which um, concluded that at least 59% of a colleague's departure caused others to consider quitting or quitting also. And that's huge. That's, I mean, 59% is... That is huge. <laughs> the study didn't control for certain workplace morale or job satisfaction. It was a straight sort of objective, you know, when somebody leaves, how many people are looking at leaving also? And that was a huge, a huge number. And so you look at folks leaving, you look at new folks coming on board, you look at the hit to morale when employees leave and the hit to morale and living in it, you know, living with this toxic culture, you have a serious issue economically. The financials for the company really, really take a real hit. And then on top of that, you run into recruiting challenges. And this will become particularly troublesome with the new law that prohibits pre-dispute arbitration agreements because more and more of these toxic work culture issues will become public. And in this day and age, when, when candidates are looking at a new employer, they're looking at social media, they are contacting current and former employees through LinkedIn, they're looking at you know Instagram, they're looking at Facebook to some degree. They're looking at sort of the, the news feeds and they're Googling their potential employer. And the more employers are hit with claims of toxic work cultures or harassment, the worse the press becomes for them and the harder it becomes to recruit, even, you know, even with adding additional compensation. Employees are much more focused today, I think, than they have been in the past. And maybe not focused, but putting as a priority their their mental health and the the value of a positive work environment much more so than i think in the past and 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 highlighting that over the compensation so the business case there is really i think really incredibly persuasive and almost more persuasive now than it was 2 years ago and at the start of the me too movement several years ago so okay let's turn now into the situation where you've convinced the employer that there, you know, these changes have to be made. There's no longer an appetite. There's a turnover contagion that they're going to have to suffer with, uh, real or imagined. It's there anecdotally and statistically. And there's been a complaint that's been called in by an employee. It has to do with a claim of uh, discrimination. It could be sexual. Let's do sexual. And, you know, Racial. The employer now is launching an investigation in our hypothetical. The investigation has gone on. How and, and recommendations are going to be made? What are some of the best ways in your experience that you've seen recommendations and changes uh, being made within the workplace? So, for example, I that question is that's not the best question, but do you recommend? That after the internal investigation, that if there's huge changes that need to be made within a culture, are you giving these large changes? Are you breaking them down? Are we doing milestones? Are we doing smaller changes? How, what's the best way for employers to go about recommending, rather investigators recommending, and then employers implementing these changes? It depends a little bit on what the issue is. Obviously, if you have you know issues of really serious sexual harassment and assault, big changes need to happen right away. There's no way around that. True. Okay. But for the most part, I mean, most of the time, these are very often, very often, these claims are based on something sort of of a more insidious and less 
obvious and maybe somewhat more nuanced issues. So usually we're looking at recommendations to to make changes that aren't just sort of taking one person out of the mix and kind of re revamping the entire workplace. It happens, but it's not as common. Again, what I recommend is, again, very similar to what I said before, you need to kind of look at behaviors that people are engaging in already that are productive and, and positive and find ways to make changes that, you know, that are that are going to kind of meet employees where they are. So big changes off the bat are often off-putting. Employers don't like to make them. Management has trouble implementing them. And if you try to implement big changes that people aren't going to comply with, you're going to end up in a worse situation because you've now, you know, you've not only lost some employees or some employee trust and credibility because of the incident itself, but after the investigation, people are going to expect something to be different. And if you simply give lip service to changes and don't actually implement them or they aren't enough or folks don't follow them, now you've, you've really lost, you've lost almost irreparably. So smaller changes initially give the employer kind of a, a way to make, to demonstrate that they are going to make changes, that the changes are going to be implemented and actually complied with. So offering a stepped or a phased approach to changes can be really useful in doing that. Tying them to quantifiable milestones is valuable. So, you know, you you suggest some changes. One of the things I always recommend is implementing an EAP, an employee assistance program that gives employees, they don't have them already, they're often available, you know, through the same mechanism as benefits, as health, health insurance and things like that. It gives employees a mechanism to seek help outside of the workplace in a comfortable setting to kind of talk about what their issues are and to kind of start to develop some of that you know, trust and help for dealing with some of the trauma that they may have experienced in the toxic workplace, making changes through either, you know, changing some of the reporting lines, changing some of the structures that the people use to to report issues and maybe appointing an ombudsman or a hotline or something, and then quantifying those by looking at turnover, for example, or employee satisfaction. Maybe you're auditing that every six to 12 months to see are we making a difference here? And if you are, you know, keep moving along that same path. If you're not, then then you know bigger changes may be required. You know, tying it to something quantifiable means that there's actually some accountability for making the changes. So no performative window dressing changes. I think that would backfire. That's what I'm gathering for what you're saying. There has to be systematic, authentic change that you can measure that is phased in, notwithstanding, you know, if it's some type of assault, you know, that has to be dealt with, but a phased in authentic way so that employees know and understand that you're serious about making changes. That's what I'm kind of hearing what you're saying. Yes, I think that's right. Again, putting aside any issues that have to be dealt with legally kind of up front, this phased in approach with these quantifiable milestones and a regular checking in and a regular sort of reminder, you know, you start with maybe training the employees on the changes and then follow up with additional training on the changes. It signals to the employees that you're committed to the change and that you're going to make changes. I think people know that big changes can't happen overnight. It's very difficult to do. I think employees understand that, but they want to see that the employer is doing something. And as long as the employer is doing something and following through, um, you will be able to begin to go down the road of rebuilding trust with employees and with the workforce. You're not going to have an overnight, you know, change in morale, but you'll see folks happy that you're you're building toward it. And if you keep a consistent process of implementing those changes, then employees see that you're committed to it and that it, it will be happening and that it, there is a point in the future where things will be better and they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. For the employer that's listening in right now, you mentioned the employee assistance program. Have you had any situations where you've seen that be successful? Yes, I have, which is why I recommend it. I've seen it in several cases. I had a client recently where an employee was assaulted. They were assaulted by a client, so it wasn't a fellow employee, but it was in the workplace. It was a work-related assault. And the employer had, you know, they didn't really didn't have any legal liability issues, but they called me and said, what, you know, what can we do? This employee is 
struggling and we know they're going to struggle in the future because of this assault. And so we, we spoke to the employee about the EAP. We connected them with the EAP um, and that gave them a, a kind of an easy way to identify and find a counselor to help them deal with processing the incident and processing what had occurred and then reminding the employee about their FMLA and ADA rights as well if they needed to take time off. Um, we recognize and the employer recognized that the employee may take some time to process what had occurred and that the, you know, the processing takes sometimes a while, sometimes months before the employee starts to really feel the effects of the trauma that they experienced. And initially they sort of just wanted to get back to work, but after after months they they may start to feel the effects of what occurred and doing, you know, frequent check-ins, giving them that EAP information and allowing them to kind of understand that the employer was had an understanding of what things they may be dealing with kind of going into into the future dealing with this trauma. Obviously you can't overstep the bounds of health care privacy and ADA issues. But we also found that having HR regularly receiving training on the impact of traumatic events and toxic workplaces and mental health issues allowed HR to have a better understanding of what the impact would be and understand the impact of these things are not always the next day. Sometimes they happen over time. And sometimes someone seems like they're better and they're, you know, they're getting back to being productive and then they have a setback. So the combination of implementing the EAP, giving the employee information about the EAP, and then training HR to have a better understanding of PTSD and complex PTSD with CPTSD really help them have a better ability to speak vocabulary that would help their employee get the help that they needed and also be able to better explain to folks who were within the, the sort of chain of command um, without violating the employee's privacy rights, but help the folks in the chain of command understand what are the expectations of this employee and and what do we need to do to accommodate the situation that they're dealing with and the mental health issues that they were dealing with to get back to get back to you know from the employer's perspective being a productive employee but from the employee's perspective getting back to sort of being a healthy and functioning a healthy person which takes some time so okay i'm going to play devil's advocate because i like what you're saying but I know that there's going to be the employer out there, the HR special that's saying, come on, Kate, this is business. We have to keep cost. It sounds like you're talking about some super cushy, soft, quote unquote, soft skills, extraordinary, emotionally IQ savvy workplace. This is about business. Having this EAP program may increase our cost for training. What about that argument that, you know, we weren't liable and maybe by doing these types of programming or trainings, it will give the employee some incentive to increase complaints or, or demand these extra services outside of what, what we already provide as the employer. Do you, have you heard any complaints or pushback from employers about these EAP programs that would seem to be more heavy on soft spills or high emotional IQ? Do you get pushback on those? Yeah, I do. I don't get as much on the EAP once employers understand what it is. Okay. But I do definitely get the pushback on training and on this notion of sort of employers being more, especially sort of training for HR, employers being more cognitive of what the issues are. And I, I hear quite a bit, if we do more training, people are going to hear something in the training is going to make them think, oh, I need to <laughs> file a complaint. And I, it, it, that is absolutely true. And, and I understand the concern. And certainly I, I get that that's a concern. And I don't have any statistics to share as to whether or not that is the case. I don't believe, based on my experience working with employers who have good policies and procedures and then engage in this kind of training, as compared to those that don't, I'll tell you, I, from anecdotally, I do not see an increase. I do not see more complaints in the employers that have very comprehensive anti-harassment, anti-discrimination training. In fact, I would say that with my clients, those that have the more comprehensive training programs have fewer incidents and fewer complaints than in those employers that don't have them. And I think the reason is multifold. One of them is with more training, 
becomes more of an understanding by particularly by managers or supervisors of the potential liability. And that causes them to be more cognitive or, or aware of their behavior, particularly in states where the manager themselves can be personally liable, which, which is the case in many states. So one, you know, there's an awareness of the potential for complaints on the part of the employees, but there's also more of an awareness on the part of the folks that may be either causing the problems or allowing the problems more often, more allowing the problems to continue. So I think those employers tend to be more, find more of an imperative in preventing these issues in the first place. I think the other reason is that from an employee perspective, they feel more empowered. They feel like they can raise these issues if they have more training, if they have these programs. And by doing so, they're more likely to raise them early and more likely to raise them before they become a real problem. And obviously it's a problem when they're, when they're small issues, but it's a bigger problem when the issues have been allowed to kind of go on for some time. The employees didn't feel comfortable or didn't know or understand how to raise them. Their managers in HR didn't know how to talk about them. They didn't have the vocabulary to articulate how to, how to address the issues. And then you run into just sort of a, an explosion, right? The employee holds it in. The managers get frustrated. Um, HR is towing the company line. And the employee feels no other outlet than to sort of explode into a massive complaint, whether it's internally or it's with the EEOC and then ultimately litigation, they feel that they have no other options. That's what creates our toxic work cultures. That's exactly right. And I think the mere implementing, simply implementing training and identifying for employees so that they know what their options are to get help if they're dealing with something, you know, a mental health issue or toxic work culture issue, knowing how they can deal with it internally knowing that they have the option of the EAP to get help to kind of get through those issues if they need to. It helps to kind of keep that frustration at a minimum because they have an outlet. They have a mechanism to let it out, let it out early, and hopefully get some of those issues addressed before they become so problematic that the employee can no longer function. And then it becomes, starts to infect the entire workplace. So, Kate, and we're going to wrap up here. I know that we're, we're both, you're starting your day in, well, closer to starting your day there in Arizona. We're heading toward lunchtime here. But what I wanted to emphasize as we close out is what I'm hearing. It doesn't matter if you're an employer now transitioning back after the pandemic, if you're addressing, realizing, confronting workplace toxicity or if you're dealing with the new legislation with that's recently passed with Senator Gillibrand, and also if you're thinking about ways to properly implement your EAP program, it sounds to me, Kate, that you're saying be strategic, plan early, no performative measures to brush things under the rug, and it really takes comprehensive training that is supported by things such as there is a solid business case. There is also anecdotal evidence in the turnover contagion. These are all things that employers need to avoid if they want to have high productivity and a viable workplace. Did I miss anything else in kind of this this summary? And, and you say in your own words, maybe one or two things that you think an employer should take away. I think you hit the key points. I think the most important thing here as we sort of combine this concept of returning to work or changing the workplace into a hybrid model and then dealing with how to address the toxic workplace issues or prevent the toxic workplace issues is bearing in mind that flexibility is key and that employees are demanding and and they have the leverage to do so now a more hospitable, courteous and respectful workplace that recognizes them as human beings, that understands they have families, they have Sometimes they have things they need to do, but they can still get the work done and they can get it done productively, sometimes more productively. And so being flexible and really assessing where and how are my employees happiest and most productive rather than just returning to kind of what was the way it was before, um, because that's how we always did it. Those things address not only the issues of return to work, 
but they can also address at the same time these toxic work culture issues. Um, and when you combine that with comprehensive training, you have a much greater likelihood of preventing those issues from rearing their ugly head in the first place and then allowing for easier transition for folks to kind of reintegrate into the workplace and redevelop a degree of trust and comfort in the workplace. Excellent. But see, I knew that I knew we would have we were talking before about, you know, some of the things that we would go over, but I knew that just giving you the mic, so to speak, and letting you run with it would be the best way to have this conversation. So, Kate, obviously, I know how to reach you in the office at Grising Law, but if you could just tell our listeners if they want to reach out to you, if they want to learn about how to properly implement comprehensive EAP program, if they're looking for counsel on returning to work after the pandemic or hybrid work situations, or if they're actually dealing with, they're being confronted with, they have to launch or address uh, some type of sexual or gender or racial discrimination, how, where can they find you and how can they contact you? So they can find me on the Grising Law website. They can find me via email, kfrenzinger at grisinglaw.com. Or they can call me. Phone number is 480-993-1103. And again, it's Kate Frenzinger. And Judy, I appreciate this time. This is an issue that's really near and dear to my heart and one that I really enjoy working with, with employers on because I, you know, it's really rewarding to see employers implementing these policies and finding that their workplaces are, are improving for it and their, and their employees are happier and more comfortable. It's a great feeling to be able to help employers with that. These are the conversations that I like to have. I mean, Kate, you know that I've made a pivot in some of the work that I've done, worked for so long on behalf of individuals that were either confronting either sexual violence or psychological abuse. And I found that after doing that for so many years, that it has to be a more collaborative approach to dealing with these issues. And I am hopeful that it can be done. The one thing that I always noticed, and I said I was going to end, but (laughs) I'll add this. The one thing that I've noticed, Kate, is that when our institutions, and in this case, our employment, our businesses, when we think about how to do this, solve these big, you know, breaks that we have, when we have these cultures that are not working for anyone, that when we are really thinking about collaborative approaches, such as you were saying, the EAP programs, or really authentic internal investigations, that that's the only way that we're going to get it done. So thank you for this conversation. And I encourage any employee out there to reach out to Kate. She really does know this. As you can tell, I sat back myself and was just listening to what you said. So thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, Judy. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, everyone. Be well. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.